you, Kathy. She flippantly said, oh, I'm going to sing something before you preach. I'm like, yeah, you sang that song, so I <laughs> wish I could do that. I just wish I could sing like that. Um, so listen, we are, uh, we are on our uh, really, I guess, kind of our last official uh, preaching series or preaching sermon in our I'm a Pray For You series. Next week, we're going to do something really uh, interesting and really good, and I, I've, I've kind of been pushing this uh, for the last couple of weeks. I want you to be here next week as we do our prayer and praise service. It'll be a very participative uh, service, and I want you to be a part of that. It's going to be really, really great where we kind of enact some of the things that we've been talking about over the past few weeks and really, I guess, almost over the last month or so. Um, and this morning, as I, as I kind of got down and, and looked at schedule things and, and, and realized that Christmas is coming, I don't know if you know that or not, but it's almost here, and so you might as well just get ready for it. Uh, and all the things that's going to happen, I, I, I thought I really want to push this series further. But I, I just don't have the time, and we don't have uh, the time within our schedules to do that because there's a lot of other things that we can talk about when it comes to prayer. Uh, we can talk about the specific prayers in Scripture that are so powerful and so incredible. You talk about Hannah's prayer at the beginning of Samuel. Uh, where Hannah prays for a son and she dedicates that son uh, to God. And then if you keep reading that story, the most incredible part is, is that uh, when she does have Samuel, um, she gives him to the Lord's service. She gives him to Eli the priest. And we all go, well, that's fantastic. But the problem is Eli the priest had boys of his own, and the Bible says they were awful people. And Hannah continued to honor her promise to God and continued to give Samuel uh, to Eli. And then you know how that all came out. And he ended up being Israel's kingmaker. He got to anoint the kings of Israel. It's just a really incredible story. thought about we could talk about the prayer uh, of Jonah, right? You all remember the prayer of Jonah uh, where he finally got uh, tossed off the ship and got swallowed by the great fish. We call it a whale, but the Bible doesn't call it that. It calls it a great fish. And so uh, in the middle of the fish, he prays this prayer that's recorded for us in Scripture. It's an incredible prayer. And he talks about seaweed is wrapped around my neck, right? That's very literal, uh, and I think also very figurative, talking about how he was being dragged into things he shouldn't have been into. Uh, We could talk about we can go all the way and just talk about Jesus' prayers in the New Testament, right? Uh, we know the Lord's Prayer. Remember that one? Uh, we all probably could say that from Vacation Bible School in 1984. Uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a very, very scary prayer to pray. We just mindlessly spit it out. But when you look at the words of the Lord's Prayer, that is, it's hard to say the things that he's saying, give us today what we need for today. God, I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. Give me my daily bread. Give me enough to satisfy me for this moment. That's, those are heavy, heavy words. We could talk about the prayer that he prayed uh, when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Y'all remember that? Uh, he, he gets around the tomb and, and, and Mary and Martha are there and they're, they're saying, listen, he stinks by now. Don't do this. And he said, no, you don't understand. This is going to be even better than what you think. And, and he stops and he prays. And what he prays in this moment is one of the most interesting and really kind of different prayers in scripture. He says, Father, I thank you that you hear me. And then he says, I know that you always hear me, but I said that for everybody else here. And I, you read that and you go, 
Wow, that's, that's profound. That's deep. Jesus is praying to God going, listen, I know you always hear me, but these, these fools don't know that you always hear me. So I'm going to say that out loud so that everybody knows that you hear me, right? That is an incredible prayer. And there's, we could just keep going and going and talk about the Garden of the Gethsemane where he says, you know, not my will, but your will be done. It talks about how, God, how Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. And all this stuff plays into all these different prayers. But I thought about what's the most important prayer. What is the most important prayer that we can pray? Well, because we grew up in the South, and maybe maybe you're not from the South, but now you're here, and you're kind of rooted in, in a Southern uh, culture, and maybe you've grown up in church your whole life, you would say something along the lines of the sinner's prayer, right? We've all kind of heard this. We've labeled it that, right? We've labeled the sinner's prayer. And, and we would probably say that that is the most important prayer that we can pray. We, we ask Jesus to save us, to forgive us, and be the Lord of our life, right? And, and we, I would agree with that. I think that's probably that is the most important prayer that we can pray. And, and uh, I'm going to ruin some of your day right now because this may not, uh, you may not know this, but that prayer is not in Scripture, okay? That's not a Bible verse that you're quoting. Because we all say something like, you know, you know, Jesus, forgive me my sin. Uh, uh, save my soul, right? You know, we've said those things. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with how you say that. You said some kind of version of that prayer in your life. I've had the opportunity... Uh, through my years of ministry, to lead hundreds of people through this prayer. It's an incredible prayer. Sometimes we do the repeat after me, right? Y'all remember that? Where the preacher would say something and you'd repeat it, and then they kind of go back and forth. Sometimes we do that. And, and what I've moved into here lately is I just, I just tell the person, just express what's in your heart and ask God to save you. And those are the most honest and most genuine and most incredible prayers because they're just saying, God, listen, this is who I am, and this is who I know you to be, and I'm asking you to be my Lord and to forgive me. So just know that sometimes people struggle with that. I, I had that in my notes just because I like to, like to be able to clarify that. Sometimes people struggle with that. Maybe what if I didn't say the right thing? Well, there's not a right thing. It's, it's all in your heart. It's an expression of your heart, and you're not saved by anything that you do. So if there's this magical combination, then that puts the, puts the responsibility of salvation squarely on your shoulders. If you mess it up, then you got to start off. That's not how it works because we're not saved by anything that we do. We're saved by everything that Jesus did. And so when we accept that and we believe that and we, and we really make it um, real in our hearts and in our lives, the expression of our heart is just simply that we mean it. That we, that we understand that we're a sinner, that we understand what Jesus did on the cross, that we ask for forgiveness, that we ask for salvation, that we ask to make him the Lord of our life, which means there has to be some sort of life change after that. And in that moment, when you do that and when you pray that prayer and you commit that and you come underneath the umbrella of the Lord's leadership in your life, then you are saved. The Bible says it's with your mouth that you confess that Jesus is the Lord and with your heart that you believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And so the most important prayer that we can pray is when we pray to receive Christ and when we repent of our sin and we do all those things. But here's the word that I just used that changes everything. Because it is a biblical word. Did you catch it? It's repent. The Bible talks about repent. It doesn't say 
walk an aisle, pray a prayer with the preacher. Uh, it doesn't say, you know, fill out your membership card. It doesn't say any of that. It says repent. This is the, this is the message that John the Baptist preached, right? He pre- preached a message of repentance. This is the message that Peter and James and John and Paul all preached through their letters of the New Testament. This is the message that Jesus himself preached. I've got it in my notes here, Matthew chapter 4, verse 7. From that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, quote, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I know the majority of you know this, but I'm going to say it anyway, just because I think it's important to kind of reiterate. Repentance is not a one-time thing. Salvation is. Repentance is is not. Once we are saved, we are saved forever. Once we are his, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Like we know that and we believe that as part of what we believe as Baptists, as what we believe as uh, Christ followers. If you read the word, then you know that once you are saved, you are always saved. But you continue to mess up, right? We continue to have sin in our life. And so repentance Initial repentance for salvation is a one-time thing, but continual repentance needs to continue to happen. We have to continue to ask for forgiveness. We have to ask to, uh, to have God set us back in right relationship with him. And so a prayer of repentance is the most important prayer that you can pray. Because when, you, when you're lost, it saves you. And when you're saved, it sets you back in right relationship with God. So I have this definition of repentance. This is what I found. This is one of the best definitions I found. So it's the one we're going to use this morning and, and kind of base a couple of things off of. This is what it says. Real penance, sorrow, or deep contrition for sin as an offense and dishonor to God. A violation of his holy law and the basis in gratitude towards a being of infinite benevolence. And is accompanied and followed by an amendment of life. Repentance is where you are really sorrow. You're full of contrition. You're you're deeply broken for your sin, for the offense and dishonor to God, the violation or an ingratitude, and is accompanied by this change of life, which just means this. You can't just say you're sorry and move on. You, you can't, even worse, say you're sorry and continue to do what it is that you're repenting of. There's brokenness that's accompanied with repentance. There's an understanding of what your sin is and what it does. And then there's a change in your behavior. Hello, that's true repentance. And so for right now, how many of us just need to stop and repent? Because we've been going through the motions of, oh, I messed up, God, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm going to continue to do that same thing. Oh, I messed up again, I'm sorry. Oh, I messed up. And you're really saying sorry so that you hope in some way that God would lessen the punishment or the consequence for that sin more than you are for being broken over what you've done. There's a big difference. Being broken is being repentant. Being sorry is just being sorry. What the Bible teaches over and over and over again is repentance, repentance, repentance. Now, with that in mind, let's look at a passage of Scripture. If you're going to turn your Bibles to Psalm 51. 
If you're in our Wednesday night Bible study, we kind of hit this a little bit this last week because uh, it kind of went right along with the life of David that we've been uh, kind of tracking through for the last few weeks. Uh, but I'm going to use this psalm as an example of repentance and what this means in the process of repentance. And so let me give you a little bit of background uh, because this is a very pa- famous, quote-unquote, famous passage of Scripture after a famous person that did a very famous bad sin. Okay, so let me get you caught up to this. This is uh, King David wrote this psalm. Uh, we understand David as uh, the same guy who killed Goliath. If, you, if you're not uh, from church background or maybe you haven't heard this story in a long time, uh, David was the you know, 13, 14-year-old kid who came up and killed Goliath and uh, kind of rose to fame through uh, some things that happened. Samuel anointed David as the king of Israel, even though they already had a king of Israel. And, uh, and so he had to wait and had to kind of figure out the process of how that was all going to play out. Uh, through that, he was a musician and a songs, uh, songwriter, and he would write down songs. We have a lot of songs that we call psalms. Uh, in Scripture, and so uh, David wrote a, a, a vast majority of those, and we have a lot of those recorded for us in the Bible. And so, what has happened is that up until this point, we finally have become king over Israel. David is in place, in authority, leading well. Uh, and the Bible says, and this is in Second Samuel chapter eleven and chapter twelve, that uh, it says when in springtime when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, the commander of his army. To fight for Israel and David stayed at home. Now that's a very big mistake, number one, because wouldn't we all know that if we were just supposed to do what we're supposed to do, if we just did what we were supposed to do, we wouldn't get in trouble? And so David was supposed, he was a king. When kings go off to war, what did he do? He sent somebody else and he stayed at home. Listen, if you don't get anything out of this morning, if you'll just do what you're supposed to do, it'll keep you from getting in major issue in your life, right? So here's what we know happens. David stays at home and he's wandering around the rooftop of his palace because he's got a big house and he's looking down on everybody and he sees a woman bathing, right? We know her as Bathsheba. I've always joked that said if she was taking a shower, she'd be known as shower Sheba, but we know her as Bathsheba, right? And so Bathsheba's taking a bath and he sees her and he, the Bible says that she was beautiful, like she was gorgeous. And so David uh, makes mistake number two and says, uh, bring her let me go find out about her. Somebody go tell me who she is. And so somebody comes back and says, that's um, so-and-so's daughter. Tells her who her daddy is. And says, that's Uriah's wife. And David takes it a step further and says, well, why don't you bring her to her? I just need, I need to meet her. I need to talk to her. Well, the Bible says that she comes. David sleeps with her and she conceives and has a child. And so now David's in a predicament. He's committed adultery, right? Which by Old Testament law is punishable by death for both the man and the woman. And so David knows he's in violation of God's law. He knows he's taken something further than he sh- ever should have. And, and now he's got something he's going to have to deal with. So what does he do? He calls for her husband. Where's her husband? He's a good guy. He's off at war. He's fighting for Israel. And so Uriah comes back home, and David uh, liquors him up and tries to get him uh, to lower his inhibitions and send him home, making, thinking that, well, we'll just... Pretend like this is all his and we don't have to worry about this anymore. And Uriah's a good man. He doesn't go home. He sleeps on the doorstep of David's house. And after a couple of different failed attempts, uh, David realizes he cannot manipulate the situation any longer. And so he sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a note to the commander of the army to put him in the fiercest fighting at the front line, essentially sending him with his own death sentence. So... Word gets back that, uh, that Uriah has officially passed away. 
And so now David is not only just an adulterer, he is also a murderer. And, uh, and Bathsheba mourns her husband's death. And after the time of mourning, David calls for her. She comes into his palace. He makes her his wife. And everything is fine, right? Because we've, we've kind of manipulated the situation. We've covered our tracks. Everything's okay. Everybody's just going to think King David has another baby. It's not a big deal. Everything's good now because we've taken care of a sin issue on our own. Well, as most of us know, sin, there's no sin that goes unpunished, right? There's always a consequence for a sin. Sometimes that consequence is immediate. Sometimes that consequence plays out over years. Sometimes that consequence doesn't ever even show itself until years and years later. But there's always consequence for sin. And so Nathan, the prophet, the prophet of God, comes to David and he calls him out on his sin. He knows exactly what has happened. God has revealed to Nathan what's going on. And so Nathan tells David, this is what's going on. And David breaks down. He knows something has been kind of found out. And he knows that he has adamantly stepped against what God has for him. What's very interesting is that David, through almost every area of his life, writes these psalms. And he writes these songs. And for the nine months that Bathsheba was pregnant, he did not write a single song. He knew. And it's, it's like us, like when we know that we've done something that we're not supposed to do, it just eats your lunch, right? It just eats away at you and you just can't have freedom in almost any area of your life. And you can fake it a little bit, but when it really comes down to it, there's just this unsettled uneasiness. And so for those nine months, he did not write a single psalm. And then Dave, Nathan comes and calls David out. And David does what he does. He writes a psalm of repentance, which is Psalm, we know, as Psalm 51. So if you've got your Bible, let's read this together. We're going we're gonna to do something this morning that uh, I should never, ever, ever, ever do, okay? And if, if any other pastor were in my position, they would look at me and say, Matt, don't do that. But because this Psalm is so good and because the process of repentance is so laid out for us, we're going to take it step by step. And I'm just going to tell you, there's eight points to my message this morning. I never do that. I, you know, I learned a long time ago, you get three points and a poem and a joke, and that's about all you get, right? And so I learned that. I don't know if y'all have been around here long enough to remember Craig Jenkins. I love Craig Jenkins. Craig would open with a joke. He would give his three points, and he would end with a poem almost every Sunday morning. And I would make fun of him, and then I ended up doing the same dumb thing. So here's what preachers say. Don't give eight. Eight is way too many, but we're going to give eight points this morning, and then I'll give you my last thought, and we'll be done. So let's walk through this process of repentance. Number one I have is ask for forgiveness. That's the very first thing we got to do. Let's look at Psalm 51 verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I love this. What's he asking for? He's asking for mercy. We're at the end of our rope when we've done things that we know are against God, that we know that is against what he desires for our life. The only thing that we want and the only thing that we crave in that moment is mercy. Now, there's, a lot of you know that there's, through our English translation, there are different words that the Old Testament writers would use for God's name, like we have El Shaddai, we have Jehovah, we have Jehovah Jireh, we have El El Adonai, we have all these different names, right, for God. This word, have mercy on me, O God, 
is Elohim. And Elohim is the first name of God written in Scripture. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim, God. That word means creator, God. It's a very formal name for God. Now, what makes this interesting is that this point, we have God's covenant name of Yahweh, right? We all know that. And, and so whenever, whenever you're communicating intimacy with God, you use the word Yahweh. But David didn't feel intimacy with God. He almost felt formality with God. It's almost like dads in the room. I don't know if your kids do this. I, my kids do not do this. Uh, but if, you're, if your 10-year-old were to run up to you and go, Father... I would really like this. You'd look at him and go, wow, what, what do you want? Because something's up if you're calling me father, right? Because that's a very formal name for dad. This is what David is doing in this moment. He's using Elohim as a very formal, because he doesn't feel the closeness to be able to say Yahweh. Because that's what sin does, right? It pushes us away. It creates distance. And he says, have mercy on me, Elohim. Because and according to your unfailing love. Listen, just because you mess up doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. Okay, listen, we all are going to mess up. We have all, some of y'all have messed up on the way to church today, right? Amen for that. We have, we have unfailing love for us. The Bible says very specifically that once you're a child of God, you're always a child of God. I just talked about this earlier that neither Romans chapter 8 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present or the future or any powers, neither height or depth or anything else in all creation will able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, once you are His, nothing makes Him love you any less. But you've messed up. And you have to ask for forgiveness, number one. Number two, recognize your sin. This is very easy. Verse three. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Stop acting like you don't know what you've done. Listen, in our culture, we like to walk around like we're just, we're just clueless. Oh, I, I don't even know why they would, I don't know why God would be upset with me. I don't understand why he would be punishing me. Listen, stop acting like you don't know what you've done. You know your sin. You know when you're not living life for what he wants for you. You know when your actions don't line up with your intentions. You know, so just own it. Look what, look what he says. Against you and you only have I sinned. What are you talking about? What about Uriah? He sinned against Uriah, right? He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against, really, if we talk about it from a step back, he sinned against the entire nation of Israel because he's supposed to be the leader. And then he writes in this psalm, Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. Listen. Sin 
is ultimately against God. Yes, sin affects other people, and yes, the consequences of sin ripple out through relationships and through individuals that you love. Listen, sometimes the consequence of sin ripples through generations, right? We've seen that play out. Generations are affected because of your sin. But ultimately, the target of sin is God. And when we sin, we are sinning against Him every single time. When you cheat on your spouse, when you come home drunk, when you, when you explode in anger, or when you say vile and hurtful things against other people, yes, it hurts the people involved. It, it wrecks marriages. It causes kids to grow up in homes that are unstable. It ruins friendships. It ruins relationships. It ruins your witness. But the Bible says when we do those things, God's name is blasphemed. God's name is the one that's mocked. God's name is the one that's drugged through the mud. So when we sin, we ultimately sin against God. There's no such thing as it only affects me sin. That's what we like to tell ourselves. That's what we like to make ourselves feel a little better. Oh, I'm not hurting anybody but myself. No, it always hurts other people. And it always, always hurts God. That phrase that says, you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge, it just means this. This is hard. Whatever punishment you give, you're right. Have you ever prayed that prayer? God, I'm sorry. This is what I've done. I'm not, I'm not hiding from it. I'm not running from it. I'm going to own it. And God, whatever punishment you give me, you are justified and you are right. God, if you allow my marriage to end, you would be right. If you allowed my kids to resent me, you would be right. God, if you allowed me to lose my job, you would be right. God, if you allowed me to file bankruptcy, you would be right. Because I have sinned against you. And whatever you allow in this situation, you are right because you are justified and you are holy. That's a scary prayer to pray. David says it right here. You are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. No matter what, you are right. We have to recognize our sin. And number three, we have to acknowledge reality. This is a hard one for a lot of us because we like to live in our own little world, right? Our own world where our intentions trump our actions, our intentions overwrite what we actually did. Well, I didn't mean to or I didn't intend that this ever happened. Listen, we have to acknowledge reality. This is what has happened. Verse 5 and 6. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Here's reality number one. Reality number one is I am and always will be and always have been sinful. I am and always have been sinful. I am not good. I am not good on my own and nothing about me is good on my own. The only good in me is you. Number two reality is you desire truth. That's, that's a big statement. It's kind of vague in its original language, but it means this. You can't just give lip service. You desire truth that is evidenced in my life. We talked about this last week, right? It means you just can't know all the right answers. God wants you to actually do 
all the right answers. He wants you to live it. You can't just give lip service. You can't fake it till you make it. You can't uh, talk it and not walk it. However you want to say that, uh, your fruit, this is what we talked about last week, your fruit is evidence of the gospel and the lives of believers. And so you desire truth. You desire us to live in truth. I am sinful. And you desired me to live in truth. And I didn't do it. That's, that's acknowledging some realities. Number four, we ask for restored relationship. We're halfway through. Verse seven, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones you have crushed rejoice. This is really neat. Numbers chapter 10 and Leviticus chapter 14. Give us a little bit of information of why this phrase is on here. This is kind of weird. Think about cleanse me with hyssop, okay? In Numbers 10 and Leviticus 14, gives us two Old Testament laws that have to do with cleanliness after contact with something. And so in one, if a person touches a dead body, they were considered unclean. And there's a lot of different rules and laws about cleanliness and uncleanness in Jewish law, okay? And so if you're unclean, then, uh, then you have to do some ceremonial things to be clean again. You have to present yourself uh, to the priest, and he has to deem you clean. And, uh, and then while you are in your unclean phase, you're not allowed to go to uh, you, you weren't allowed to go to the temple. You weren't allowed, they don't have a temple here, but they, you weren't allowed to go to church. Uh, you weren't allowed to be around the body of believers. Most of the time, if you're unclean to a certain point, you had to live outside of town. You couldn't even live with your family until you were considered clean again. And so in one of them, if you touch a, a dead body, you are considered unclean. If you have leprosy or some form of skin disease, then you are unclean. And the only way to get clean by the law through those two things is to be cleansed with hyssop. Isn't that cool? And, and so David, what he's saying here is, I've literally been diseased and dead because of my sin. And I'm asking you to make me clean. I'm asking you to come in and clean up the mess that I've made. And that, here's, here's what James says in James chapter 1. When tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. See, death is the end goal of sin. That's what sin leads you to, is death. And here David, in his beautiful imagery, is saying, I've been dead because of my sin. I, I've not, not New Testament, I've died to sin, but I've been dead because of my sin. I've been diseased because I've been separated from your presence because of my sin. And I'm asking you to wash me with hyssop and make me clean again. At the end of that verse, um, he says, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. That is incredible. I talked about that this morning at men's breakfast. The bones that you have crushed rejoice. This is, a, this is, a, this is a, a, an image of whatever that is inside of you 
God has just completely destroyed. And although that may be painful in the moment, the end goal in that is joy. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. God, take that sin that's in me that you're cleaning with hyssop and completely destroy it. And God, I will give you joy for that. This is, this is deep sorrow. This is incredible regret. This is exactly what our definition of repentance is. Number five, we're on the backside. Here we go. Change your heart. We have to change our heart. Verse 9, hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. That word blot out is kind of like a cloud moving over something and blotting out the sun. That's the imagery he's using there. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This verse gets to the real issue when it comes to sin. And it's not our actions. and That's not our intention. It's our hearts. When we are in the middle of sinful behavior, when we're in the middle of sinful act, or we're sometimes we're in the middle of a season of sin in our life, y'all have been there, the problem's not our actions, the problem's not our words, the problem's not our thoughts or our overreactions, the problem is our hearts. And Jesus confronts this in Matthew chapter 15 because in this in Matthew 15, they're trying to they're trying to catch Jesus. The Pharisees are trying to like kind of trip him up and, and, and try to catch him in something that he's not supposed to say. And, and in all things, I just talked about this, in all things, the Pharisees are mad at the disciples because they didn't wash their hands, right? Uh, and, and like in the back of your mind, you can hear your grandma like yelling, uh, wash your hands because Jesus and germs are everywhere, right? And so uh, the, the disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate. And there's all these laws about what's clean and unclean. And if you eat something, that, if you touch something that you eat uh, and it goes into your body, it makes you unclean because your hands were unclean. And Jesus just kind of comes back at them going, what are you talking about? And he says to them, don't you know that what, whatever you put in your body doesn't make you unclean? It's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. And all the disciples standing around are like, yeah, take that, Pharisees. You don't know what you're talking about. And they kind of, you know, I just see, uh, I just see John and, and, uh, and Matthew over there kind of like high-fiving and nudging each other like, yeah, he got them that time. And they walk away. And if you keep reading to Matthew, they, they like get to, by themselves and they go up to Jesus and say, hey, uh, um, I mean, it was really good what you said. Well, what did it mean? Because we, we didn't understand that either. <laughs> and so they're like really excited that he put the Pharisees in their place, but they still don't get it. And Jesus responds to them in the best way possible. Matthew 15, 16 says, are you still so dull? Jesus says, are you guys still that big of an idiot, right? He just, do you still not get it? And he says to them, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes through the stomach and out through the body? But these things, the, the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, those are the things that make a man unclean. It's our hearts that have, the, have to change. I'm praying through a series in January that I'm thinking about preaching, talking about your heart's showing. And sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes that's a bad thing. Your heart's showing. When you react to someone or you respond to someone, your heart's showing. When you serve, when you love, or when you don't. Your heart's showing. And Jesus says here, we can modify our behavior for a certain amount of time, but until our hearts ultimately change, sin's going to continue to be present. And so we have to have a change of heart. Number six, 
Remember your salvation. Verse 11 says this. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. You should circle that word. That is very, very cool because that is the Old Testament reference to the Holy Spirit. And some people think that's only a New Testament thing that happened after the book of Acts. That is not. This is the Hebrew word ruach. This is holy ruach, holy spirit. That is, a, that is an Old Testament version or an Old Testament reference to the Trinity God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here's, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. He says, remind me of my salvation. Remind me of what you saved me from. Remind me of how far I've come from what I used to be to what I am now for what you've done to provide that salvation for me. Remind me that I owe you everything that I am. Church, when, when you're reminded of what you deserve, of the punishment that you deserve, and the gift of salvation that he provided, how, how could you continue to sin? How could you not be drawn to repentance? Remind me, restore to me the joy of of your salvation. This one's interesting. I want to give you the two thoughts around this. So I'm, number seven here is blank because I want to read the verse and then I want to give you two interpretations of it. And then I'm going to give you the mad overall interpretation. Okay, And so I'm going to let you know what I believe of the two and you can kind of settle this on however you want to. So here's verse 14. This is number seven, verse 14. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Now, here's the interesting word here. Blood guilt. It's on the screen. This has two different meanings. And some people interpret it on the first meaning. Some people interpret it on the second meaning. I'm going to let you make your decision. Here's the first one. The blood that he's already shed. He's saying, God, forgive me of the blood guilt, the, the things that I've already done for, for, obviously, Uriah, for what I've done here. God, forgive me for that. That makes total sense. That's one great definition of that word and how it could be used and applied in this, in this verse. The problem that I have with this definition is he's already asked for forgiveness, right? Remember, we've already read that back over here. Have mercy on me. Uh, wash away my iniquity. I know my transgressions. My sin's always before me. He's already done that. And so the second um, definition, I guess, of this word is the blood of anticipated violence. And so what he's trying to say here is, listen, I've killed before. I could do it again. I, I've, I've, already, I've already crossed the line. And once you cross that line, it's really easy to keep crossing it again and again and again. And he's saying, save me from blood guilt, from, from blood guilt, from further mistakes. I believe that, that my number seven on this is to protect my future. Ask for protection of your future because we know this to be true, right? We know that once you do something one time, it's easier to kind of go back and do it, especially if you feel like you got away with it. It's easier to just kind of go back to that and maybe even push that boundary a little bit more, a little bit more. We do this relationally. Listen, if you're single and you're, and you're in dating relationships and you, you kind of push a line uh, either physically or romantically, you feel like it's easier to do that every time you go back to that, right? And you just push it a little bit further. It's easier and easier. And you go, oh, I don't need to do this anymore. And you stop doing this. And you stop. But it's easier to keep going back once you've done it once. 
We know this uh, when it comes to our, our interactions with individuals, when you've, when you've kind of just brushed some people off and you've used people and you've walked over people to get what you want, it's easier to continue to walk over people to get the next thing that you want. We know that when it comes to uh, interpersonal relationships, when, when maybe you flirted with somebody outside of your marriage, and, and it's, it's just innocent, but it's just easier just to keep doing that, and you can keep going further, and you can go further. And I believe what David is saying here is protect my future. Because once I've crossed this line, God, I don't want to ever go back to this again. I definitely don't want to go any further. Protect my future. And then lastly, number eight, praise. Very simple. Verse 15. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you do not despise. I love this. Open my lips. Remember I told you that he used that very formal word for God in the beginning? And he, he's, just, he's just saying, God, bring back that intimacy of our relationship and let me just, let me just, be, able to, let me just be able to talk to you. And when I talk to you, I promise, God, I'm going to praise you. My mouth will declare your praise because you are good, because you are faithful, because you are loving, because you have forgiven me, because you continue to forgive me, because you've granted me the opportunity to have right relationship with you. I will praise you. And when the weight of your sin has been lifted and when the condemnation that this world tries to put on you kind of falls off and you've been freed from something that's been weighing you down, listen, we've experienced it. You've hopefully experienced the only reaction we have to that is praise. It's the only thing that we can do. We go, oh my goodness, this is only a God thing. This happened to me this week. Listen, something that had been heavy on me, something that I was just kind of a little bit worried about. And the next thing I know, God just totally worked it out and I have been telling everybody in my immediate family and in my, in my extended family, listen, this is a God thing, and I'm excited about what he has done. What am I doing? I'm praising, because when that weight comes off, your natural reaction is to give honor and glory to God. And David says, you don't want sacrifice. You don't want ritualistic going through the motions. You know what that means for us? It means that when you sinned and you've come to the acknowledgement of that sin, God's not wanting you to just go to church. He's not wanting you to sing in the choir. He doesn't care if you tithe. He wouldn't say that you need to start a ministry or volunteer or fill a shoebox or, or feed the homeless. What he's, those are all great things. But what he wants is he wants a broken and contrite spirit. He wants us to, to just be broken before him and to ask for forgiveness and to, to repent properly. Because when we do those other things, those are all good things. Sing in the choir, fill a shoebox, start a ministry, do all that stuff. I want you to do those things. But don't do that just because you sinned and you think that you're earning points with God because it doesn't work like that. Those are all things that we do. We're in charge of those. We're doing those things. I can do this and maybe God will see me and he'll grant favor and maybe lessen my punishment. That's what we think. We don't say it out loud, but we're, we're going we're, we're to say it today. Those are great things, but what he wants is a broken spirit. He wants us to acknowledge our sin, 
He wants us to ask for forgiveness. He wants us to face the realities. He wants us to do all the things that we just got through talking about. Then, then you can begin those other steps. But you have to repent first. That word contrite, a broken and contrite heart, that word means to crush to pieces. You want a crushed heart? When was the last time your heart was crushed over your sin? That's repentance. That's the most important prayer you can pray. Then after all that, serve. Do all those things. The most important thing is full, total understanding of your sin and repent and then do it. And so I have this. This is great. For following this model, I should be on the screen. Is it? Is those eight? No, can you go back to uh, where it had the eight things on there, uh, the last little screen that I had? If we went to this, yeah. Ask for forgiveness. Recognize your sin. Acknowledge reality. Ask for a restored relationship. Change your heart. Remember your salvation. Ask for protection of your future and praise. If we follow that then your prayer of repentance would sound a lot like this. God, forgive me. This is what I've done. Fill in the blank. I know that you desire truth and for me to walk in truth, and I have failed. Father, restore our relationship. It's the most important thing. Remove this desire from my heart and help me pursue you with all that I am. God, you've done so much for me. Jesus died for me. He took my punishment and my shame and my sorrow. And God, I'm sorry for taking that for granted. Father, keep me from this. Keep me from running back to it or even worse. God, you are God and you are so good. Thank you for loving me and thank you for forgiving me. And you alone deserve all our praise. That's the model of the prayer. These eight things. Here's the last thought and I'm going to be done. If you remember our original definition of repentance, it was on the screen. Uh, and it says this, uh, real sorrow, deep contrition, uh, the basis in gratitude toward an infinite, uh, a being of infinite benevolence is a God who continues to love. And this last sentence, and is accompanied, by followed, and accompanied and followed by an amendment of life. There has to be a life change on the backside of Repentance. You can't truly repent. Listen, you can't truly repent and continue to do the thing that you're repenting of. That's not repentance. That's not brokenness. That's not a crushed heart. When you truly repent, you change the way you live. True repentance has to have an accompanied change in life. I put down underneath that, don't just pray this prayer. Live this change. Don't just pray this prayer. Live the change. If that's how what God sees repentance, that's how God understands repentance. It's not just this, oh, I'm sorry, let's just keep going. This is a true, honest, crushed spirit, brokenness over the sin. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do this morning. It's real simple. You know what it is. Now, I said that earlier. Don't act like you don't know. Whatever it is that you need to repent of, this is your opportunity to do it. Whatever has been kind of sitting in the pit of your stomach this morning, 
We talk about sin, we talk about repentance. There's just something that's uneasy in us, and we know that that sin that we've committed over the last couple of months or even over the last couple of days or even over the last couple of years, we know is not right. Maybe nobody else knows, but we know. It's time to repent. It's time to lay it before God and to change the way we live, to not go back to it again. Maybe for some of you this morning, it's, listen, I don't even know who this Jesus guy is. I need to repent so that I can be saved. We talked about that at the very beginning. I need to take that first step. My unbelief is the thing that I need to repent of first. This is your opportunity to do that as well. And so I'm going to ask, uh, I'm going to ask you to stand. Uh, Kathy's going to come and she's going to sing uh, our invitation song. TJ, our, our Dustin and I will be up front. Uh, we will be able to here to pray with you, to walk you through this template of repentance, to hear your heart. But listen, it's not about repenting to us. You're not telling us, I don't want to know your sin. You're telling God. Don't miss this opportunity to have true, honest, genuine repentance this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for an incredible model of a man who lived a life that was full of mistakes but who the Bible still continues to describe as a man after God's own heart. And so, God, we have to see that David, through his mistakes, continued to pursue what you had for him. God, that's what we want to be. Through our mistakes, we want to continue to pursue what you have for us. Father, your unfailing love is what gives us the mercy that we desire in this moment. So, Father, whatever it is in the hearts of the people who are here this morning, God, you know And we know what it is. Father, today we're asking for repentant hearts, for brokenness, for acknowledgement, for forgiveness, for restored relationships. God, our mouths will give you praise because you are faithful to forgive. God, in this moment, don't let us miss this. There's somebody here who needs to talk about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a a Christian, what it means to repent of sin initially. I pray that they come and they ask if they have have anything they want to just pray with or pray over. Dustin and I would be happy to do that with them. Father, this is your moment to work in our hearts. Don't let us miss this. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. You guys come as Kathy sings. Hey, this is Matt Overall, I'm the pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Just want to say thanks so much for watching our services, whether through our television ministry or our online ministry. We appreciate you so much being a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and we'd love to have you come and join our worship service. Uh, Sunday morning service starts at 10.30. Our small groups start at 9.30. And we'd love to have you be a part of it. We've got a lot of different ministries that happen at Emmanuel, from our children and youth that's focused on Wednesday nights to our uh, women's Bible studies that happen throughout the week. We'd love to have you be a part of everything that's going on here at Emmanuel. Thanks for watching.